Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. It's that Murphy factor. What I consider salty language for Jim. Doors open. Pose. That should be our tagline. <laughs> Murphy Brown, we're, we're relevant again. again. Oh, now, hey. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season one, episode 13, Soul Man. Hello. Hello. Hello and welcome back. We're still on season one. Still on season one. Still on season one. Back in the day when there were so many episodes in a season. Right? Yes. You kind of forget. Yeah, I forgot that there were 20 plus episodes every season and also that you had to wait for all of them to come out. Oh, yes. Someone on Twitter who's watching on Antenna TV was talking about the season three finale and went, how did you people live with yourselves? <laughs> you didn't. You like oh. finales were a huge deal. It was a big summer for me. Yeah. Is Murphy pregnant? Oh my god. Oh my gosh, what happened? Who will she pick? What did it say? Who's the dad? We don't. Well, we all. Come on. Yeah, I know. I wanted. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be Jerry, but I knew it wasn't. We knew it wasn't. Yeah, because he was the father, and then he'd never come back on the show again. Exactly. <laughs> it's like who doesn't appear once or twice a year on the show? Oh, it's the other guy. For me, it was the what makes things the most difficult. Oh, so you were smart. <laughs> I'm a pessimist, <laughs> <laughs> and I love conflict in my entertainment. So, Soul Man was directed by Barnett Kelman. It is written by Tom Seeley and Norm Gunsenhauser, and it aired February 20th, 1989. Uh, although something interesting is that it was filmed before Why Do Fools Fall in Love? Corby guesses because they switched around because they wanted it to air very close to Valentine's Day. Um, Soul Man was filmed on January 13th, 1989, and Why Do Fools Fall in Love was filmed January 20th, 1989. The, so, the main song of the episode you may recognize as Soul Man. It was performed by Sam and Dave, also known as Samuel Sam Moore and David Dave Prater. Isaac Hayes found the inspiration for Soul Man in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. So in July 1967, newscasts of the af- aftermath of the 12th Street Ride in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, this was where black residents had marked buildings that had not been destroyed during the riots, mostly African-American owned and operated institutions. Uh, they were marking them with the word soul, like blood on the doors on Passover. Uh, Hayes and his songwriting partner, David Porter, wrote of a story about one's struggle to rise above his present conditions, boasting, I'm a soul man, that it's a pride thing. Also, many people may better know this song from the comedy team Blues Brothers, which is what I knew best growing up because I was also a trumpet player, a trumpeteer for about a decade, and I was in the jazz band. And that's the Blues Brothers version is the one that we did the most because it's a little snappier because obviously they're running all the time. Yeah, I'm a big fan of this song, so I like anything that opens with it. I love this song, too. And um, knowing now this backstory about the song is really interesting, particularly because I did see the movie Detroit. Mm-hmm. And so I, w- I thought, oh, yes, I remember that from the movie. And it's a little bit of, co- of context for someone like ourselves, I think, yeah. who was not born during that time. Well, especially the yeah the, the idea of seeing it as the, the blood on the doors on Passover, like that kind of thing, and like the way that marginalized and oppressed groups express themselves and find ownership in in words and either words that are newly powerful to them or reclaiming terms yeah. that were negative that are now powerful to them. I think it's it makes me want to just sit down and re-listen to this song with that in mind. Yeah, I agree. Very much so. So thank you, Murphy Brown. So we start off with this wonderful song. And Charles Kimbrough, aka Jim, oh. rocking the brown suit again. Just but like I, re- I wrote Swagger City. Yes. He is just, he's he's rocking the brown suit, but he also knows he's rocking the brown suit. It was the first time that I thought, even though I know this is not true, mm-hmm. and or maybe I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure they didn't play the music when they filmed these. Sure. But it makes you feel like maybe they did. It be- looks like he's yeah. listening to Soul Man. He's got a certain yeah. pep in his step. And maybe he is in his head. Sure. Uh, and I know... I know about editing, mm-hmm. you know, so, but it was like a spark and I went, I know that's not true, but then we might get an email from someone saying, actually guys, we did play the song. I hope it was, but I also kind of hope it wasn't because I love the idea that Charles Kimbrough just in his infinite wisdom of Jim and his, this morning routine that he has, that that just gives him the swagger. There's just such mm. a sense of confidence yes. that I haven't necessarily seen. Not that I would say that Jim is not confident. No, but, but it's the, you see a bit more, I'm seeing an image of Jim in his prime. 
Yes. When he and I mean I think this is part of it with the boys club element that yeah. is in this and episode. And he's doing that at the end of the day. He's going to exactly. be with his boys. Yeah. He's in this like he's at his prime. He's like a man's man in a man's world kind of thing, and not in a not in a douchey way. No. But no, I just no. it's nice to see Jim in his prime. And this scene is so great. It I I. I it was like a dance move. And maybe this is mm-hmm. to me because Charles Kimbrough, which we'll talk about soon, yeah. has a Broadway and musical theater ex- experience. Oh, does he? Yes. <laughs> uh, if you're unaware, stay tuned, guys. Yes. That it felt that way. And and I'm sure because it is, of course, choreographed mm-hmm. in a way, but mm-hmm. it doesn't feel choreographed. It just feels like it's fl- one fluid motion. What I wrote is that his meticulous routine is my spirit animal. There you go. He it's does the, this every day, probably. Yes. And it's just that it's everything. It's, it's the choreography of it. It's like he comes in and this is what he does every morning. It's like I know people who don't feel ready for their day unless they run in the morning. Or mm-hmm. I know some women who, unless they do their face, because there's a certain routine that calms them it's and grounds them. It's his ritual. Them. It's his ritual. And he just, he primly wipes off the inside of the cup and the outside and underneath. It's very slick. Make sure the counter is clean. Everything is just, the way he pops up the little stirs. Oh, like it's everything so is good. It's so good. It's slick. Also, so he puts in creamer, right? Mm-hmm. Half and half. Do you think that the guy on the creamer box bottle thing looks like Jim. It does. It's a, I wrote, I kept writing, it's like quality American craftsmanship across this opening. I'm thinking that's on purpose. Probably. Yeah. It's, a, it's of a time. So pretty much this is Jim's routine of having coffee in the morning. Mm-hmm. He has his mug, which we will learn later is a very important mug to him. I want, I need my version of that mug. Oh, we'll get it for oh, you. Yes. yes. We'll get it for you. Mm-hmm. Maybe we, sh- we should do that, actually. <gasps> oh, we, sh- we should. If, if a Jesse mug and a Lauren mug. It just makes sense. Um, so he's got his coffee, and then the song just about, you know, ends as Jim sort of goes, damn, and uh, spills a little bit. Everything was good, and then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he cleans the counter, he cleans the inside of the mug, pours the coffee, gets the creamer, all that jazz, and then we're ready to start the episode. I do have to add one thing, that there's something about a man who says, damn, Oh, and the way he says it. It's very, feels like my dad. It's, damn. It's, he's got such resonance when he does it. Yeah. It just, it spills and goes, damn. And I couldn't figure, as I was writing it in my notes, I couldn't figure out how to write the way he says damn. Yeah. There wasn't the correct punctuation to get across, like, the gravitas that he has. Well, it also fits into what has been established with Jim, mm-hmm. uh, is his... This rhythm. His fastidiousness. Mm-hmm is that it's not just about sort of spilling it as a klutz and it, it's about you want everything to be pristine and mm-hmm. and maybe he's gotten it on his shoes or or even just on the floor. Well, that's the thing is I, I, I'm on the outside of the cup that he has meticulously and primly wiped yeah. off as he's getting like everything was perfect. It was clean and ready. And then it just that little like, yeah. you know, it just like slopped over the side just a little bit. Yeah. But the humor in that moment and why I laugh out loud each time that I watched it was that in a single tiny moment and in a single syllable, you know that everything he just set up was just just brought down yeah. by this one little moment of Which, coffee. Now that I think about it, could be a little metaphor for this episode. I think so, yeah. Oh, the coffee is so his treehouse. <laughs> oh no! And it's all gonna come crumbling down. I mean, that's come a bad on. metaphor for a treehouse. It's he's going to burn it down himself. That's true. Yeah. Good girl. So Frank exits the elevator. Um, he's got his tux and a dry cleaning bag, and he's about to thank Jim, but then stops and asks if Murphy's in. Jim awkwardly says no. Then Frank thanks him for inviting him to the Dumfries Club. Then we have Scott. We now know Scott. officially know his name since we looked him up. Office worker Scott is thinks Jim as well. He's been invited to the Dumfries Club. Uh, we hear that Red Bishop is speaking. I had no idea who Red Bishop was until this episode. Yeah, girl, okay. you looked that up. I also appreciated that um, a man of color is being allowed in the Dumfries Club. Yes. Scott is a man of color. I'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. And then Ted Williams, who as a baseball household, I, of course, yes. know who Ted Williams was. And Which Frank is very excited about. Very excited about. <laughs> Frank is fanboying all over oh, the place. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He brought his tux. Yes, he did. Uh, and we'll talk about that tux later. Yes, we will. Okay. So Frank is super excited. He uh, gives uh, Scott a high five. But then Murphy comes off the elevator. So Frank uh, tries to pretend that he's play fighting with Jim. Uh, but Murphy knows, she knows what's happening, you know, that they're all having dinner at the Dumfries Club and that Red Bishop is the best storyteller in Washington. And she hears the dessert cart is better than sex. <laughs> she isn't just, she's the epitome of like, no, 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 I'm I'm fine. I'm fine. It's fine. I don't mind. It's great the it's way she so does good. it. <laughs> and they're all, nobody believes her. <laughs> I hear that the dessert cart has apple brown Betty. I love apple brown Betty. It's funny, though, because we're watching this with a lot more, you know, open eyes uh-huh. for the show. And than hindsight. Hindsight. <laughs> well, that's what I was getting at, was yeah. that for some reason, watching this now as an adult and looking at that line, 
the dessert cart is better than sex. Mm -hmm. Different thoughts going through my head than when I was 14. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I used to think that kissing when I was very young must be like eating a really good plate of food, particularly spaghetti and meatballs, because that was my favorite. Well, yes. Yes, that makes sense. So I associated kissing with food. That means I would have associated with steak. Mm. Mm, Well, I mean, meaty. I used to think that French kissing was when you opened your mouth. I could see that, because you do, in a way. Well, because on TV, you didn't see tongues. No, God, no. Well, actually. Well, (laughs) I thought it was kissing when your lips were together, and just, uh, what am I trying to say? Now, pursed? Yes. When your lips were pursed and together. And then French kissing was just, no time. I just thought you just opened your mouth and then locked them together. Yeah, people don't know what we're talking about. Spoiler (laughs) to season three to the tongue kiss. (laughs) Yes, so much. Jim says that Murphy knows the reason that she she's not invited, and she goes, "Yes, the reason." She kind of sulks off. I love that it's subtle; that it, it comes out in conversation. It yeah. is just like, "This is why you can't come." Like this sounds like dialogue mm-hmm. that you know you know why. Yes, I know the reason. And then of course we're all going, "Oh, what's the reason? What's the reason?" And you kind of know you, you you're picking it up. Yeah. And there's the yeah, it's that idea of discovery through dialogue as opposed through just exposition dump, mm-hmm. and the fact that we get the payoff, but it takes a little while. Yeah. Before we finally hear her. I appreciate that. So Murphy goes into her office and is her secretary supposed to be a a punk? I think so. Maybe just a mess. Like a network version of a punk? She's got that, that bleach job that looks more like a highlighter. and Yeah, it's a yellow. And I couldn't tell. Is she, she filing her nails? She's painting something. She's painting. Okay, I But couldn't. not her nails. It's like a... I think I think that it's like a bottle or something. The last time I watched and I tried to look at her, the screen was very tiny. Yeah. And then I, I meant to go back. I tried on my computer and on the TV. And I was like, I don't think it's her nails. I yeah. think it's some sort of bottle. She's just being weird. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I love we get nothing out of her outside no. from Murphy just dismissing her in, in exile. <laughs> Corky and Miles come off the elevator. I love the way that Corky walks. Oh, I love it. She's it's just so comedic. She's chin forward. Yes. She's she's ready to go. She's like she is an eager little yapper, and she's gonna get what she wants. But I I don't know if it's just more like obvious in this episode. But for some reason, I just went, oh, that's Faith Ford's really great walk. Yes, yes. <laughs> so Corky is upset because everyone gets to do commentary, but she does, and it's not fair. It is not fair, you know. But Miles feels that no one is interested in her story on fat pets, to which she says it's a heartbreaking problem. Miles, uh, did you know? Given a choice, a dog will eat itself to death. To which he says, so would my Aunt Esther. I don't see you worrying about her. He's very insufferable in this episode, Miles. He really is. He's kind of annoying. I think it's a thing of that he's the little boy again, surrounded by the men, and just trying to be included in the men's club. Yeah, he's he's probably compensating a little bit. I think the thing I appreciate about the growth of these characters Mm -hmm. is that and as we've talked about this, they've had, I mean, minus a couple times when we realized it was a, a reordered scenario. Yeah. The characters go through their growth arcs, but it's not we have one moment of epiphany and then they're fixed. You know, Miles has had a lot of growth, but it doesn't mean he's perfect yet. And I think this sure. is a bit of a setback, especially yeah. with the idea of the men's club and wanting to be chosen and finally getting chosen for that. And like you that that kind of acceptance, I feel like immediately kind of infantilizes people. It's that that need to be chosen, which immediately puts you on a, a step down that I can see in Miles. Yeah, I'm just noticing things in him that I haven't noticed before. Mm. And I don't know if it's just season one or he's always been a little bit like this. <gasps> what's going to happen? I don't know what's going to happen, guys. So, Miles is very excited to see Red Bishop and he goes on and on about it. And uh, he doesn't get Frank and Scott's finger waving to let them know that Murphy has come out of her office and she is behind them. And Jim has to finally remind Murphy that the club is men only. And she goes, and they have great dinners and great guests, and I don't get to go for one reason and one reason only. And <laughs> I'm sorry, just I, you I replayed this one so many times. Here's the thing: this particular clip, starting mm-hmm. from Jim saying, "You know, the Dumfries Club is for men only," mm-hmm. is a clip that gets shown a lot. Mm-hmm. It's it very much epitomizes the show for some people. In I a think small so. capsule, including later in the the actual quote with Terrence Mueller about. Oh, yeah you have a reputation for doing this sort of thing. Oh, it's such a great insight. I think it really does set up Murphy. Mm-hmm. And she's somebody who's yeah. going to break down barriers. Yes. Whether so, they like it or not. <laughs> and it has to do with something you've got and I don't. 
See, I, I don't. Here's mm. the problem when we do quotes: is that I'm trying not to sound and like do you're an doing an impression, like, like yeah. I'm doing an impression because it's not going to be as good as Candace Bergen. You can't. But then, as the actor in me, I feel like you want to do it justice. I want to do it justice. <laughs> so, so I'm just apologizing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> To my $60,000 theater degree. <laughs> I'm so sorry I did this yeah. to you. And the best part about this is that she drags it out, which I'm sure is on the paper, so that everybody in the room is like, she's going to say penis. She's going to say penis. But she doesn't. No, no. She goes, a tiny, pathetic, little Y chromosome. Ugh. And it's the way, and you're doing it right now with your fingers, it's the way she's holding her fingers that yeah. looks like she's indicating the teeniness of the penis. Mm-hmm. And Jim is appalled. Of course. Everyone is taken aback, but Jim is appalled. He Sometimes Jim has what I refer to sometimes as his Victorian lady <laughs> elegance, yes. where he just, <gasps> and like clutches his collar and pearls, and he's <laughs> like, he just can't take it. Uh, Miles thinks that Murphy's making too much of a deal, and uh, Corky says, pipe down, you male. I love it. She says, you male. Miles doesn't get why Corky's yelling at him. She isn't even in this conversation, which is very jerky. I'm sorry. Mm, no, I... <laughs> I was like, Miles! I love that he said that so that we could have this moment of Corky yes. with the other women who are sitting there listening, saying that every woman in this room is in this conversation. Yeah. The idea of that... It's a great line. The lack of inclusion is inclusion. Mm -hmm. The pointed lack of inclusion means that we are part of this conversation. Also, a little shout out to the costume designer because oh. all the women are wearing bright colors. Yes, they are wearing bold Murphy colors. Murphy is not, mm -hmm. and this includes Corky. And so when they're standing in the background, mm -hmm. it really makes them stand out yes. in a really interesting way. Yes. Considering that usually we're not supposed to notice the extras in the background exactly. because they're background. That's the thing that I noticed. When we cut to Corky and she has these three women mm -hmm. sitting or standing behind her, it's they're up against very neutral office wear and and set dressing, and they're all in primary or bright yeah. jewel tones. It's it's really a great a great view. So, um, Corky then of course after you know being this strong feminist advocate goes, what do we want, Murphy? So she's not really quite sure, but she's trying. She's trying. I do appreciate Corky in this episode. Exactly, she's she, listening and learning. She she knows that that she she needs to be an empowered woman. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't know how, but I realized I do appreciate that she's honest about it. I, yes, she doesn't pretend. She doesn't. Yeah, she doesn't pretend to know more than she does, and she goes to someone who she believes does. Yeah, and and in a way, maybe that's a, a skill—not a skill, but that's something that we should all take into account. Mm -hmm. That maybe I should be more honest in my life. <laughs> well, and especially if I want to be informed, but I don't have all the answers yet. The eagerness yeah. to say. I want to be a part of this. I believe in this. I need more information. It's something that I think could be very adaptable to our current state. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Murphy wants to know why Miles is defending this club. I mean, he isn't even a member. He needs a street map to find the White House. You know, Murphy is sick of it. It's the last men's only club in D.C., and it's time someone broke the sex barrier. Mm. And everyone, all the women go, way to go, Murphy. Woo, I love the yeah. huge cheer. There are a lot of cheers in this episode that I kept noting, and that's the first one. Yeah, and I went, they all got paid. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to take a moment yes, at please. this point, talk about briefly the history of men's clubs in America at sort of around this time. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to talk about everything because we don't have time. Mm -hmm. But something that I found very interesting in my research is that, so this was filmed and broadcast in 1989. The show started obviously in 1988. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these men's clubs admitting women came to a head in 1987, mm. which would have been when they were developing the show. Quite timely. In May of 1987, the Supreme Court ruled that Rotary Clubs must admit women. What's interesting is that this goes all the way back to 1977, when the Rotary Club in Duarte, California, admitted three women. Now, apparently, Rotary Clubs around the country were starting to admit women sort of secretly. Secretly? Yes. How dirty of them. But what happened was, I'm sure this was more prominent or vocal or out there in some way and so their charter was revoked giving them a reason to sue okay yeah no what's interesting is that the court case didn't make men's clubs illegal hence the dumfries club yep but many people at the time felt well this is going to just open the door for clubs to be made unconstitutional if they don't admit women yep in fact um eleanor smeal I say her name right, who at the time was the head of the National Organization of Women, hailed the decision as the death kneel for male-only clubs that are part of the business establishment. The handwriting is on the wall. These clubs are going to have to admit women. By 1987, Kiwanis became a co-ed organization. 
Uh, and then something that fits into comedy is the Friars Club. <gasps> the Friars Club. Uh, I was wondering if we were going to talk about the Friars Club. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I actually, interesting enough, found this out when I was doing an article on the marvelous Mrs. Maisel because there was a scene okay. when Susie goes to the Friars Club. And mm-hmm. I knew that they didn't always admit women, but I didn't really know when it started. Um, or to say when it started to admit women. Yeah, I was going to say, I think from the beginning of yeah. the time, they didn't admit um, women. And, uh, and she tries to get in and, and she's, being pushed out and it's because she's a woman and you may not know that they don't actually say it unless you know the time period oh I don't know if you guys know that women aren't funny no they're not we are not not. so the Friars if people aren't familiar is one of those private clubs of mostly comedians there are some people who aren't but it's known as a comedians club if you know the Friars roast on Comedy Central they originated and still do happen at the Friars they're usually very dirty in fact more dirty than you see on Comedy Central oh yeah very much so and they had previously roasted women but they just weren't members so they were threatened with legality in May of 1987 the Friars president Milton Berle announced that they would be uh, admitting women and by June of 1988 Barbara Streisand, Lucille Ball, Carol Burnett, Edie Gourmet, Barbara Streisand, Elizabeth Taylor, Dinah Shore, Phyllis Diller, who really was an honorary member, mm-hmm. really, and Martha Ray, and then later Liza Minnelli, were admitted as the first women to the Friars Club. Ugh, what a lackluster bunch. Seriously, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And still some of the wives of the husbands were concerned that they hoped that the the roasts and, and the events were still, you know, still dirty, that they felt comfortable to be dirty around the women. <laughs> I think those women had no problem with that. No, no. I think I think that we were good. <laughs> so, and then interesting enough, in 1987, the city of San Francisco filed a lawsuit against the Olympic Club, who by 1990 were forced to admit women um, just because they didn't want to be sued. But the city actually threatened to kick off 17.3 acres of the golf club's property that was owned by the city. They didn't comply and admit women. But going back to what you said before, according to this article from 1990, only two years before did they admit two first black members. Wow. Then cut to 2012, something that really surprised me because I'm not a big golf person. My dad is. Mm-hmm. So I know about Augusta. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It wasn't until 2012 that they let in their first female member. Wow. Really? And it was Condoleezza Rice. Well, Okay. And also the South Carolina businesswoman, Darla Moore. And what really sort of sparked this was April before, the CEO of of IBM, who sponsors the Masters at Augusta, Mm -hmm. was not allowed honorary membership when all the CEOs are given honorary membership. That was six years ago. Yeah. Oh, wait, it gets worse. Oh, no. Cut to the Harvard Social Club in July of 2017 in our new political climate revoked membership for nine women and was reverted back to an all-male status. <laughs> what a time to be alive, everybody. We've grown so much in 30 years. <laughs> we're relevant again. <laughs> Look at us go. That should be our, our tagline. Murphy Brown, we're, we're relevant, relevant again. again. <laughs> oh, so. Yes. So, so, so Murphy says that she's counting on Jim to sponsor her because this has to end at the Dumfries Club, and Jim becomes very uncomfortable. Oh, now, hey, come on. You know I can't do that. Can't do that. <laughs> uh, Murphy wants to know what they do in that place that women can't see, some kind of jockstrap dance. All the ladies laugh and giggle. I love Frank's reactions in this entire episode mm-hmm. because he's partly uncomfortable and nervous. He has a foot in each side. He does, because yeah. that is Frank. Yeah, You know, he, exactly. he gets it, but he's also, I want to meet Ted Williams. This reminds me a lot of a... A recent debate that I went through uh, creatively in a in a production about bringing women into a a routine that is traditionally male. Oh, interesting. And it's traditionally a you know pretty misogynist routine, but that's kind of the point. It's making fun of that. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was said to be updated with uh, to kind of address the Me Too movement and bring women in and be like, this is you know this is dated now. We let's do it this way. But one of the big arguments that happened was that you put. At the, at the original draft, you just put the women in saying the same things the men were. And a lot of us kind of raised our hands. We're like, guys, women are super dirty. We're super crass. Very and, much so. And I, I mean, my experience in comedy, especially uh, in crass comedy, was that often I experienced that my, my male cohorts write a lot in innuendo. And the women female writers, we write 
directly dirty. Like we are disgusting and we freak them all out. And so there was a lot of talk about, it's not about the women being uncomfortable with what's being said and done. It's about the men being uncomfortable with the women being present. Absolutely. We don't have a problem with it and we'll be just as dirty, which we see a lot of Murphy rising to the occasion. Yeah. This, for some reason, just reminds me of when I try to explain Bette Midler to mm-hmm. people who don't know <gasps> Bette Midler. So they know Wind Beneath My Wings, Bette Midler. Mm, they the, don't know. Sophie not the Tucker. tour. <laughs> no, no. And I tried to explain to someone the other day, and it, he didn't really still quite get it. We are also at, at a place where I could not tell the Sophie Tucker jokes. Yeah, you... It's a, Well, again, it's a time and a place. Yes, exactly. You don't want to uh, make him clutch his pearls. I, I think the thing that I've always enjoyed is when I hear my guy friends talk about a date they went on, there's a lot of, you know, and then we, you know, and oh, did you, yeah, you know, and a lot of that where women are like, so it was crooked? And then, and like full on detail that makes the men so uncomfortable. So I just, I always appreciate bringing that to light that we are just as bad um, in the best way possible. So Jim tries to bribe Murphy, which is, the more I watched the scene, the more insulting it felt. Yeah. Uh, it's so important to the scene and it, and I do love the way that Charles plays it because it's, it's very much as he feels bad it's not under his control mm-hmm. so he doesn't play it that way he's also desperate yes yeah. you know because he, this is his friend and, yeah. and he also doesn't want this to keep escalating mm-hmm. and the it way brings it, out these imperfections yeah yeah like the spilling of the coffee mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so he offers her lunch he offers her dinner and Murphy is just stoic and just looking at him and not answering. And then finally he says that he'll let her do the news break. And there's a ooh and ah. And even Frank's like, Murph. Uh, you know, everyone knows mm-hmm. that's a really, really big deal. Mm-hmm. She goes, sorry, Jim. This babe can't be bought. Ugh. I'm putting it on a t-shirt. Seriously, right? So, good. We fast forward and all the gentlemen are at the Dunfries Club. And we see Frank breezing in and he's got his tux on and that white Love it. scarf. That's what I wanted to talk about. Let's talk about it. Love the white scarf. That's all I need to it's say. It's just so good. And he is in he's in a desperate search for Ted Williams. <laughs> and he's like, he's not here. Is he, did, did, did he not show? And he's just kind of accepting it. And then Jim proceeds to say, no, he's inside talking to Studs Turkle, which I got excited about because Studs Turkle wrote many things, but in particular a book called Working that eventually was the basis of the show that came out. But it is a massive tome that I recommend everybody buy. I actually have taken multiple monologues out of that book. And it's all long first-person essays where he interviewed people and their various jobs. Cool. The only performer interviewed in the book, because it was written, I think, in the 60s and 70s, um, was Rip Torn. Oh. And they interview him about his job. And it's it's all about the different ways that people work. And that's how oh, I know Studs Turkle. My brain just flipped. Uh, I like Rip Torn. Sorry. Yes, Rip Torn. Uh, for some reason, I was thinking of someone else. <laughs> I'm going to ask you later who you were thinking of. Yes. But yay, Rip Torn. Uh, best name ever. Pretty so, much, yeah. And it's really his name. I mean, Rip is a yeah, nickname. But, but still, Torn is, is... Well, interesting enough, this is why I was mad that, of course, I know who this person is. But I'll tell you why later. Um, he loved when he was married to Geraldine Page. The buzzer on their apartment said Torn Page. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> I mean, you have to get married just to have that for a moment. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, so Jim is clearly a little uncomfortable that Frank might fanboy out. But Frank says, no, he's not going to He's not gonna get any, ask for any autographs. But, you know, take this little camera. And if you happen to see me standing there with my arm around him, dot, 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 kind of attitude. I and like the- he says, sorry, he says little camera. And He's I thought, little camera. that today is an oxymoron. <laughs> I, I was like, how, how little is that camera? Um, so Miles comes out from inside, very excited, saying that the who's who of Washington are there. Dan Quayle is telling knock-knock jokes to the bartender. Ding. Sam, Sam Donaldson is yelling at the washroom attendant, which Jim then refers, responds with, I wish Cobble wouldn't invite him. There are so many references in this episode. It is Unending. I should have, I mean, I wrote the names down, mm-hmm. but I should have made like a running number tally and so see many. if it beats any other episode. Yeah, I, we should have done that. I, cause the second he said couple, I was like, Ted couple. But then I started going, I was like, I can't keep up with all of these. No. Then through the crowd of tuxes, Murphy arrives and she is decked out and with a very simple, hi guys. And she has gloves on and she has a shawl that matches her dress. It's a, she's fully decked out. I love that they, particularly because it's going to contrast, which we'll talk about the Mm -hmm. the outfit at the end, Mm -hmm. is that I believe that they purposely put her in a dress. Oh, So she's around all of these men in tuxes Mm -hmm. and she's wearing a off the shoulder with a wrap Mm -hmm. and gloves. And I feel that Murphy did that as a giant F you. But I also appreciate, on top of that, not only did she dress and in no way disguise her femininity in this moment, Mm -hmm. But also, 
she still showed the respect of dressing up to the same caliber as the men. Yes, right. She didn't show up in a like potentially like sleazy cocktail dress with cutouts. She showed up in a full length evening gown that is at the same dress code level mm-hmm. of their attire. Because then all she can say is It's oh, because I'm a woman. Exactly. I am not underdressed. I am not respecting the grandeur. I am just a woman. It's also a way that Candace Bergen like holds that wrap mm-hmm. to the It's it, armor. <laughs> Not just that, and it, it's a little bit more at the end, and I'll mention what I think when we get there, is it's funny. I can't explain why it's funny. Mm-hmm, she mm-hmm. just sort of like holds it. Maybe it's the grin. I, I don't know, but there's a comedic way in which she's holding that shawl and walking, or the wrap, I should say. Yeah, I, it's the it's that Murphy factor. So they ask what she's doing there. She says, oh, there's a party, and I decided to show up. Frank does the best. Hi, Lucy, where's Ethel? I love that so it's, much. It's so great, and... Jim, you can start to see the panic rising in him. And he mm-hmm. says, you cannot be here. And she says, I'm not leaving. He says, you're not allowed in the club. And she's like, I'm in the club. He's like, you're not in the club. You're in the foyer. And she's like, we're not in the, fo- we're not in the club. We're in the, we're in the foyer. And they have this whole thing back and forth. And he goes, we're in the damn foyer. You're going to go home. I'm going to have to correct you for my story now. Because <gasps> they say foyer. I know, but I say foyer. Me too. <laughs> and so I love that you are saying foyer. Because <laughs> it was grating to my ears, even though I know that it's a little pretentious to say foyer. But that's what my mom made us do. Yes. She made us call it the foyer, yes. which was this, like, I swear to God, like, maybe, like, three little people scrunched together could fit in our foyer. If you have a foyer, you have a foyer. We have a foyer. And so I was taught to call it a foyer. Mm-hmm. And every time they said foyer, I would just laugh. I... I... I don't think I even realized that I was correcting it in my mind, but that throws me back to when I was in high school and I was doing a production of You Can't Take It With You, mm-hmm. and I was the mom, Penny Sycamore, and they, I got many, and I think it was when I also played Rizzo the first time too, that I kept getting notes about how I had to stop saying either and neither. I had to say either and neither because I sounded too posh. And it's all because my mama raised me right. Thanks, Mama Mullins. Yes, uh, my mother also would stop me from saying Hamlet. Hamlet. <laughs> Hamlet. I did not have that problem. <laughs> yes, well, you know, it's Hamlet. A, the Jersey thing. I'm about to teach Hamlet to teenagers tomorrow, so I'm definitely going to start Sorry. saying that. Um, at this moment, I would love to talk about the the performance of Charles Kimbrough in this we episode. We are finally at this point. Okay, so I the thing that I love in this moment is we're seeing the panic and the desperation in Jim rise, which leads to the discovery that will happen later about why this means so much to him. But you also see his performance pedigree in these choices that he makes. Now, Charles Kimbrough, if you look at his IMDb, is a a fraction of what, let's say, Marianne Muller Lyles is. There actually aren't as many credits as you think they're going to be. Granted, part of that's because he had long jobs, but also because he is a consummate theater actor. The first thing that comes to mind is that he's a Tony-nominated actor. Um, he was nominated for Tony for um, Best Featured act- Actor as Harry in Company in 1971. In 1984, he was in the original Broadway cast of Sunday in the Park with George. He also starred in the original off-Broadway production of the comedy Sylvia in 1995. Fun thing for me is that he he did the Chef Boyardee spaghetti and meatballs commercials in the 70s. He did? Yes. I love him so much. I have a great LA Times article that I will link on the website that the title is FYI, Charles Kimbrough isn't Jim Dial. In reality, Murphy Brown's sidekick is anchored in the theater. Um, as I have a special love, I obviously everyone knows I have a special love for Jim, let's be honest. But uh, Charles Kimbrough is also a fellow Minnesotan. He was born and raised in, in St. Paul, Minnesota. But he was in the big city, not the prairie town I was raised in. And he says, had it not been for his aunt Emily, he never would have been an actor. What I love about him, he's very Midwestern. He says in this quote, I come from a wonderful family. My mother was a pianist and my father was a salesman. They were very middle class, very middle Western, <laughs> which I think is the most charming. Um, but his aunt, his late aunt, um, Emily Kimbrough, she was an author of bestsellers like When Our Hearts Were Young and Gay. She traveled the world. She was on a lecture circuit. She was in Hollywood writing screenplays. So to somebody in the Midwest, she was this like larger than life creature. Oh, cool. Isn't that so great? Yeah, I never knew that. He says in this quote, her life was a series of anecdotes, <laughs> said Kimbrough with a warm smile. She would give dinner parties and have everyone on the floor laughing. She was on. She was an Auntie Mamish sort of person. She made the life she wanted to have. And that really, that was a model for me. And what I really appreciate about him, and I feel like I have a special connection with him as this, as a somewhat uh, con- sometimes shy Midwestern person, 
is he Kimbrough admitted he was never a particularly brave person. He played the part of the dutiful man. And he majored in acting at Indiana University. He earned a master's from Yale. So he clearly had the talent to back up what he thought was a lack of bravery. <laughs> and I love how you always hear that he's so different from Jim. Mm-hmm. They won't call him Charlie. His hair was always curly when he wasn't playing Jim. Well, we were looking at this this clip of him on, on set between takes. And you can see like him dancing around to the music that was playing. But also this idea of like he needed to get it out when he wasn't playing Jim, who was all prim and proper. Yeah. Because it's so the opposite of who he is. He's a sweet, lovable, goofy man. And if you just look at... Go to his IMDb page <laughs> and look at the picture that is the main profile picture of him. I'm going to turn it and show it to Lauren right now. Oh, is that from the TV Land Awards? Yes. Oh, that's a sweet picture. It's just so sweet. He has this big smile. His eyebrows are up. It's very open and inviting and just lovely. See, I used to watch the uh, recording of Sunday in the Park with George mm. for years. Me too. I and loved even that watched show. Murphy Brown for years before I realized that he was in that. And that was a big influential thing I used to watch. And, uh, and he's in Hunchback of Notre Dame. Notre now, Dame or Notre Dame? What should I say? Well, if we're going to be pretentious, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Notre Dame. That's he's why I in, myself. He's in both of them, and he plays the um, very Jim Dial-esque gargoyle. And that was, I think, for me as a kid, that was one of the first uh, voice actors that I recognized from something else yeah. that I knew. Because I loved Jim Dial so much as a kid. And I think because he felt very Midwestern and and familiar and, and comforting to me, that the second I heard his voice in the Hunchback of Notre Dame, I freaked out. Well, um, I was looking at his IMDb the other day, and he's actually got a small part in starting over. Mm-hmm. Which cracked me up. I, I was, I like, was hey. hoping you saw that. Yeah. So, and we'll talk more about, he has some great thoughts on Jim's backstory, which yes. we'll talk about in another oh. episode. Which yeah, is really I can't amazing. wait till we can get to that. I, I also just want to throw a quick moment over to his amazing wife, Beth Howland. Um, they, we were talking earlier about how they're kind of a Megan Mullally, Nick Offerman couple in their own right. Mm-hmm. Uh, she unfortunately passed away on... New Year's Eve in 2015, but she was a very stunning and celebrated actor, actress in her own right. She was in company with him. That's where they yes, met. Yes, she was. And uh, she started Alice and on, was it, it was for CBS, right? That was Alice? You know, and I don't know because I never watched it in its I original run. I think it was run. CBS um, because there was a Scorsese film, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Yeah, that's different. Um, but well, it's, ba- it's the TV show of that movie. Yes. The reason I knew her, aside from having seen clips of Alice but not really watching it, was that I grew up determined to play Amy and Company. Oh, And wow. she originated that role. And it's I love a patter song. I talk very quickly. I sing very quickly. And I, I love that character. And she is incredible. Look her up. I will put a, um, a link to information about her. Anyway, continuing with the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim is trying to get Murphy to leave, and she says, she's like, no, I'm here with my date, who is, she declares is Miles, who immediately responds with a, why me? Because you didn't go through the 60s, and you need something to tell your grandchildren besides how you once made a wrong turn on Constitution Avenue and wound up in a gay pride parade. <laughs> and at that moment, Terrence Mueller, manager of the Dumfries Club, arrives asking, how may I help you? And this is as all of the men are making their way into the into the club doors, into the main club room. And they all ditch her. Frank ditches her because he needs to go talk to Ted Williams. And Jim takes, uh, before Jim takes off, she says she's with Jim. And Jim says, no, no, her car broke down and she just needs help. I, here's a quarter. Here's a quarter, Murphy. I'll see you in the office. And takes off and leaves her. And so she's stuck out. I do love uh, something that sort of mm-hmm. struck me was she goes, nice try, Jim. And that's mm-hmm. also, you know, Nice try when Eldon tries to mm-hmm. stay in Science Seal Delivered. Little, yep. little, little freight callback phrasing. Mm-hmm. But I was really struck by the fact that all of the men leave her to talk to this guy. They do, yeah. Which, granted, I think there's also, like, she doesn't need no protection. Um, but the idea that she's left to fend for herself. Frank needs to meet Ted Williams. He needs to meet Ted Williams. And Miles needs to meet the who's who. And Jim just needs to get out of the scenario. And... Jim says, you're on your own. And Terrence Mueller has this horrible line that I don't know why it stuck with me, but saying, you know our policy regarding women. It's the way he says it. Yes. He doesn't say it the way Jim does. It's exactly. It is so condescending. And and the problem, like he is the problem. Jim is somebody who's complicit and stuck in the middle, but this guy is the problem. Mm-hmm. And she says, uh, what will it take? Fifty um, $50 and Jessica Hahn's phone number. And his response to her is saying, I know you have a reputation for doing this sort of thing. Your behavior is inappropriate. And to be honest, your attitude is extremely offensive. Yeah, it's it's very specific, those words. It's 
it's so it's so aggressive and belittling at the same time. Yeah, women shouldn't be aggressive. You need to leave. Yes. This is not your place. You are offensive. Your your presence here is offensive, and you are inappropriate. It's disgusting. And her response is to say, "Perch and rotate." I have a question for you, real yes. quick. Did you know what that meant before this? Because I finally looked it up. Because they use this in the show a lot, and in sitcoms. I only knew it from this show as an fu. Yeah. So I yeah, that's what it means. Which yeah. I don't know why I never looked it up. I thought. I gotta see what this actually means. I but mean, what I, is the etymology of what is it? We can't talk about it. It's too. Oh, <laughs> Google it, guys. Yep, I just, I just took that walk down <laughs> you did, logic, right? We can't. And I just thought about it. So yes, Google it, everyone. We are a non-explicit podcast. No. And what I love is after she says this, "f you," she walks toward, and the attendants shut the door, mm-hmm. and then turn and stand in front of them. And it's such a, it's like the giant medieval doors shutting and there's no chance that you're going to go in. And also he's standing behind her with a smug look on his face. Like that idea of the the man in charge who doesn't have to lift a finger and just knows. It's very like the emperor did whatever. And she turns around and she's very calm and she says, I have, I have more, I have better things to do, but I want to tell you something. I think you're petty. I think you're small and your zipper's down. Ha, made you look. <laughs> Murphy Brown saying, literally saying ha is one of my favorite things. It's so good. And what I love is that the statement is, I love the insult of you are small. Yeah. And it's something that when somebody really is hurtful to me or a friend or something like that, one of the worst things I can think about someone is that they are a small person. And the way she says it is so damning. And then the choice in the writing to then end it on Mm -hmm. her being just as petty is delicious. And the way she goes, okay, okay, fine. Mm -hmm. Like it's very truthful. It's Mm -hmm. a very truthful moment. It is. It's all the way up until, and it doesn't change until the ha. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the perfect moment. And again, it's the way she walks away with that draped yes. thing. And like, I don't know, some sort of mummy wrap. It's just really yeah. funny the way she walks. Like, there's a confidence to it. And I'm like, I know I'm funny. I'm good at this. Yeah. So um, also, the transition music to the next scene. I know we've heard it before. I just forgot to mention the first time this was added. And the transition music reminds me of my childhood. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously. Mm-hmm. But there's, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this music is comforting to me. It harkens back. Yes. Uh, so Murphy gets off the elevator with a pin and a sweater. I'm pretty sure we've seen later, and a very and a material that feels very 90s to me. I think I still have a sweater in yeah. that material. I don't mm-hmm. know what it's called. Mm-hmm. Thought you might. Know. I'd have to look at it again. Yeah, because I know what you're talking about, but I have to yeah. really look at it. Uh, Corky needs to talk to Murphy. Um, she thinks that Murphy took an incredible stand last night. And Murphy goes, "Me and Custer." And uh, Corky was only five when the women's movement started. Tomorrow she might leave her broad home, and all the men rejoice. Oh God, I'm actually angry. Yeah. I mean, uh, I get the joke. That's the whole point, yeah. but... Ugh. And she goes, will our work never be done? Oh, no, will our work never end? Our work never ends. Excuse me. Uh, so we go into Murphy's office. The dartboard is no parking will be towed. Uh, Jim approaches the Murphy's office. He wants to speak with her. She apologizes for what happened. It was a stupid stunt. She realizes that the saner way is to actually join the club. Jim goes, oh, that's rich. Because uh, there's nothing technically in the bylaws that a woman can't join. It's just that no woman had the guts to apply. And she wants Jim to sponsor her. And Jim uh, kind of has a freak out. He, he, he says, sure, you know, he'll do it after he takes off all his clothes and sings Rhinestone Cowboy in the Capitol Rotunda and does this little sort of, you know, laugh at himself. Jim is uh, devolving. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> He's unraveling. And, uh... And Murphy has sort of a real serious moment that, you know, she thought they were friends and that they'd be there for each other. And, and Jim's very offended at that, you know. Mm-hmm. He spoke up for her at the network because they didn't want to hire a woman. And he we flew to New York to convince them. Lost his favorite pair of gloves. Yes. And this is going to be a great sort of, I think, hearkening back to when we get to summer of 77 yeah. when he does stand up for her. Yep. So he did it twice, if you think about it. He stood up to uh, the executive producer mm-hmm. who didn't want to hire her particularly mm-hmm. and then went to the network who then went, well, we don't want to hire a woman. Yep. So he stood up for her twice. And also, let's remember, he's the reason she went to rehab. Yeah. So like, I, I do think that that's a really important moment, especially when we talk about being advocates and allies for each other is... It's, there are a lot of levels and the ways that you can do that. And the next one might be a little more difficult, but also remembering the love that is there. Like, I, I can see why that's very hurtful for Jim yeah. to hear, like, I, I'm not your friend. Like, I fought for you. I was there for you. I've done all these things for you. It doesn't make this one any easier. 
but to to kind of negate all of that and say and act as if that was nothing mm-hmm. is very hurtful and I think it adds a little more color to the other side of the argument it doesn't mean that he's right to not stand up for her at this moment but I do think that it it adds to the complexity of it and, and to I, the conversation. I think it's a, also a current subject that a lot of us are talking about now, exactly. which is that you may do all the right things, mm-hmm. but there might be one small thing that you may not realize that you actually have a problem with. Mm-hmm. They just did this on The Good Fight, where you had an older lawyer who is uh, very liberal and, and positive for women, and many women work for his firm. Mm-hmm. And then it's brought back to his attention that when his wife was in his class, he put more attention on her, mm-hmm. which then meant the the other women in the class, particularly this one particular woman, said that it discouraged her from being a lawyer mm-hmm. because he was paying all attention to the girl he had a crush on. Yep. And it made him really think about, oh, I, I didn't even realize that I was doing this towards a woman because I thought the other one was more attractive. Yep. I think there's a, there's a lot of that. Also, I mean, the dartboard has to be a reference to the fact that, you know, she's not allowed to park there and they will get rid of her. It could be. Like she's being towed by being denied. Because I'm just going to decide that. <laughs> uh, and then also just to add, you know, th- this episode has a lot of what I consider salty language for Jim. Yes, he does. He goes, cheap sons of bees. Sons of bees. Didn't, uh, <laughs> didn't actually reimburse him uh, for the gloves he lost in the taxi. I assume he means CBS, right? Yes. Not the taxi. Yes. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, the taxi doesn't care. Yeah. Don't give up. Uh, and then Murphy says a very important sentence. She goes, it is wrong for the Dumfries to exclude women. What Jim talks about is what the discussion is. He's the other side. Is that it's, He says it's not a public place. Mm-hmm. No one is being deprived of work or equal pay. Mm-hmm. But the big issue became that these men's clubs were where business was conducted. Was being done. Yes. And, and then Jim sort of has this monologue which he does a lot is where he 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 sort of longs for the past of tradition and continuity milk and glass bottles service station attendants men in uniform who cleaned your windows and gave you a pair of steak knives uh and he refuses to sign her her papers to Mm -hmm. um apply and then suddenly very quickly we are on set Mm -hmm. and they're sitting next to each other as they do and Jim's asking for a, a light to be moved because it's in his eyes and then she says well it's in her eyes and he goes fine whatever she wants lighting guy's name is Tommy mm-hmm. make a check of that and there's it, there's a lot of flurry in this scene which I love it's kind of yeah. how it's affecting the entire production now and so we see Corky saying why shouldn't women have what men what men do I mean men are wearing earrings and getting facelifts and right at that moment Frank's looking at her goes Corky are you wearing a bra I can only think that, because the way that Joe plays it is a bit of a smirk. Mm-hmm. I want to think that Frank heard from someone that she said that. Oh, yes. It doesn't I'm, feel like a Frank thing to say that to her. Just be like, what? Yeah. I think that he's making fun of her because he heard that she was going to do it. I mean, that's what I think. I also feel like, because it's Corky, she probably made a bit of a production about yeah. her newfound women's rights. Because um, she's she's the new baby feminist. Yeah. And, and he's, and Frank's goes off on this thing, which... Recently, it reminds me of something I'm about to talk about, but he says, like, what are we supposed to do in this scenario? Like, now I don't know. Do I pull out, when I go on a date, do I pull out the chair? Do I open the car door? Do I split the check? And what, like, do we even know what's going on with crying in the movies? Am I right, guys? And this whole thing about, like, well, what are men supposed to do now? Because now we can't do anything. And the first thing it made me think of was that horrible article that came out that blew up on Twitter a few months ago when it was a serious headline about like what are men supposed to do about hugging in the office oh I heard that and one of my friends actually was uh, a featured tweet on the cover of this particular article breaking down the Twitter response which was basically the article says it's CBS Los Angeles in the wake of Weinstein men wonder if hugging women is still okay Mm. and my friend Josh Silverman who's hysterical on Twitter you should follow him is men how will we know if women want us to hug them? Women, you could ask us. Men, it's a mystery forever. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I don't know, guys. Just ask about what's okay. It's not hard. So that's one That's one of the first moments with Frank where I'm like, really? Are men hugging themselves a lot in the office? Are, are, is it so hard to adjust with the times? You're all going to make it. And our sweet Carl stands up and says... Murphy should be allowed to do whatever to to go anywhere she wants. She's a beautiful person, and she someday she'll be my bride. Everybody groans. Everybody groans. John says it's a private club. They should do whatever they want. And do we have her name? She doesn't have a name. Okay, that's okay. what I thought. So this is this was the joke that I wrote to myself. Oh, no. I wrote the makeup woman who we must have left the show because of her unrequited love of Carl. Because we never see her <laughs> we never again. see her again. And we don't know her name. I thought she'd have a name because Scott has a name, but they say his name. Yeah, 
So I looked her up. She's a makeup woman. Yeah, I have HMU girl. Yeah. Um, and she says, I agree. Let them do their thing, and then we'll do our thing. And then Carl pipes up with, if you keep people out, it's discriminating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she turns around in fury and says, you always agree with Murphy. I'm alone with nothing to do on a Saturday night. Why didn't you ask me out? And he fires back because you, you've got a big mouth. And that sets off everybody arguing on the set. No one can get everything done. And it finally kind of whittles down to in the in the chaos, we hear Jim telling Murphy that she is the most bullheaded person he's ever met. And she says, well, you're elitist. And he says, you always have to make a point, don't you? She goes, yes. And here's another and drops her pencil point first into his water. And the entire place freezes. I have to say something real quick that I only noticed because I wanted to know what they were saying. Mm -hmm. Overlapping on this show is a really great thing. And Norm talked about that. Mm -hmm. And the only time I've really been able to hear what everyone is saying is when I had the script in front of me. Mm -hmm. Everything I mean. And Mm -hmm. and that's the great thing about overlapping dialogue because you get a little bit of everything. That's on purpose. It's supposed to be like that. They they find a way to pull your focus to the things you need to hear. So I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying Mm -hmm. that for our purposes to know what they're saying is helpful. Yes. So something I noticed that's going to come in at the end Mm -hmm. He says, you always have to upset the apple cart. Yes. And I had never heard that before mm-hmm, mm-hmm. until I was trying to listen. So put a pin in that for later. Yes. Oh, so the entire place freezes and realizes what she's done. And he's staring at it in horror. And he says, you apologize. And she says, make me. Mm. And then they start arguing and everybody argues. And, and action. They are back on set, back on the show. And he's, welcome back. Murphy Brown now joins us. Hi, Murphy. And they have the most wonderful stumbling they've lost like they're supposed to be conversational this moment she's talking about the you know the story that she just did and, and they just keep interrupting each other and kind of talking over each other and i say the rapport is fractured mm-hmm. and you just you see the break in their relationship in this yeah, moment and can't. it's they're not in sync it's such a brilliant representation of what is happening in seeing them not be able to vibe on on live television. And something just really quickly about this whole scene, this is a great part of it, and I think this is one of the classic episodes of season one, and I absolutely love it. Going back and watching that scene, it felt a little bit, not preachy, but like, and now we say our point of view, and now Mm -hmm. we say this point of view. Mm -hmm. So that bugged me a little bit, but I didn't notice it it the last time. It is, I mean, let's be honest, it's, it's a very clever way to have a preachy moment for both sides. Yeah, it's not completely it's, preachy, but it was a little like, oh, you talk and then I talk. And yeah, then we have somebody from this corner. We have somebody from this yeah. corner. But what I love is that it's intermixed and it's creating more chaos. And I think that's why it works. It's a very important scene. Yes. Yeah. So uh, Murphy comes home to find Eldon. It's almost after midnight and he's building a skylight in her bedroom. <laughs> oh, Eldon. Didn't he have a vision uh, or a dream? He, he, he felt that sh- this is a woman who needs a skylight. Oh. And I love that she's like, no, oh no, Elton. I didn't ask for skylight. I don't want a skylight. It's such a child thing to do. It's like <laughs> short sentences. But Elton says it is a hole in her bedroom now, and so he's got to finish it because if she sleeps on her back, she might drown because it's going to rain. And uh, Murphy is convinced that Elton has been hired by Diane Sawyer to drive her crazy, and it's working. Um, so Elton feels that you know this whole men's club thing is just you know lose, making her lose her capacity for joy. You know he's been to the Dun- Dunfries Club, and the, and she's she thinks, oh my god, Elton is a member. He's like, no, 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 I I I laid tile. It's a bunch of rich guys sitting around naked. He goes, although, I must admit it is a comfortable way to lay tile. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> thanks for the image, guys. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> and so, so Jim's at the door, you know, and he, he needs to apologize for his behavior. You know, he even doesn't know if she's, he's to come in. Murphy wants him to come in. Um, you know, his friendship means a lot to her. And this whole time, they want to have a private conversation. And they're trying to hint that Eldon needs to leave, which he's happens like, a lot. No, I'm good. <laughs> it happens a lot. He, he just, he's open. He has no boundaries, mm-hmm. you know? And, and then Jim tells this really sort of beautiful story that the reason that he's so upset is that when he was a kid, there was a tree fort. Oh, I love this story. It's 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 really beautiful. And and this happens a lot where, you know, Jim's like, I have to tell you something that I've sort of been, you know, hiding inside. And the Randall boys in his neighborhood had this wonderful tree fort. But then he kissed a girl that one of the brothers liked, Sarah Bettinger. And they never let him in the tree fort. But then he never kissed Sarah Bettinger. Mm. She's such a lovely moment. And Murphy tells, a, 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 you know, a similar story that when, you know, she wanted to be on the baseball team. Mm-hmm. But the boys, you know, wouldn't let her in. She didn't do well. She spent a summer. I love it. She goes, you know me. Yep. She spent the the whole winter, I should say, you know, getting better. Mm-hmm. And then she got on the team. But then puberty struck and it hurt. 
sliding yeah. into first. Just funny because then Jim also was like, well, Sarah Bettinger developed. No, she blossomed. Sorry. <laughs> she, blossomed. she blossomed early. Um, and I love the fact that that's a story that Jim can laugh at, yeah. even though it's about breasts. So Jim's just, what are we going to do? And, and he agrees that he will sign her paper, but needs to know that the membership committee still has to approve her. And David Brinkley thinks she's a putz, which is another word mm-hmm. that apparently they had to fight for. Wow, times have changed. Well, it's a more cruder version of it schmuck. Is. Yeah. It means penis. Yep. But funny enough, after we did the whole, you know, schmuck thing, mm-hmm. I was reading more about it. And apparently schmuck and putz are kind of in that Yiddish thing that they've become to mean in the vernacular stupid. Yeah. Even though they don't. Yeah. And that bugs me because it doesn't. But anyway. Yeah. And he has this great moment, Jim, where he just takes a breath. And there's so many emotions going on. It's a really awesome moment for Charles Kimbrough. It's a, it's a theatrical training moment. Like, there's so much depth in his he choices. shakes his head and he signs the paper. This is a man who did Sondheim. We fast forward to the Dumfries Club and Murphy is in. She walks out and Jim says he, he can't understand. It took him three tries to get in. And she said, well, you have to be a little more resourceful. The gentlemen in the room have a few more skeletons. <laughs> In their closet. And he says, I love that he says, dirty pull, Murphy. Wish I'd thought of it. Yeah, I love it. He says it in such a gentlemanly, awesome mm-hmm. way. It's great. It's and like, ooh, you played dirty. Wish I'd thought of that. He respects her so much. So much. And it's in it's in that whole scene, but yeah. also in that line. And Let's that, talk about her outfit. I like to call this Diane Keaton chic. It is. I The first thing I thought it was Diane Keaton. She's also cosplaying as an old school men's yes. club member, which it's I enjoy. Great. She's got the high collar. She's got the the brown again material. I'm not sure what that material is. Um, is it a tweed? And maybe it's a tweed. I think it's a tweed. I think it is a tweed. Again, she's she's really cosplaying she's, as a character. She's got the tie. You know, I respect a good cosplay. One of my favorite outfits for uh, season one, actually, and that the Ugh. the image which we'll get to of her with her hand Posed. on the doors is the way I'd like to enter every room. I, it's what, the way I try to enter most rooms. Uh, I, whenever I see two doors, I really try to open them <laughs> as much as possible. It also made me, it reminded me of, uh, if, not the arms, but the opening of the two doors is mm. Loretta Lynn. Yes. No, it's, sorry, Loretta Young. <laughs> yes, yes, that Loretta. As the Star Trek nerd, I appreciate that she says now it's time for her to boldly go where no woman has gone before. Can I tell you that when I wrote that in the summary, it tried to spell check it to man. <gasps> Stop. So, Google Drive, check your spell check. Google, get with the times. I also just want to throw it out there that a lot of people nowadays don't realize that the original, not everyone has watched original Star Trek, and it was where no man has gone before. As I got into the later iterations, it was where no one has gone before. I I did know that. But it was where no man has gone before. And so, at this time period, it would have been where no woman has gone before, and that would have been a big deal. And what I love is she goes, Mr. Mueller, boys, doors open, pose. And then Jim is just like, will you just go in? <laughs> and I feel, I love she, so much of their relationship in that moment. She also puts her shoulders back yes. before she goes forward. Like, here we go. It's a full production yeah. to, to cross that threshold. And when Jim is like, just go in, she kind of, her body kind of goes down like, okay, all right. All right be sorry. a good girl. And I love it. He says that um, all the men are upset that their uh, club funds have to go to putting in a Tampax machine. Also, something I like to do, reference to Tampex and not tampons. Uh-huh. Although Tampex sounds funnier. Tampex but, is a funnier sound. So that might be why. But it is that thing of Kleenex. He's clearly nervous for her and that he, he's trying to prep her for what she might go up against. She says, no, she's earned a living talking to mercenaries and crime bosses and slumlords that she, this club will not scare her. And as we go through this scene, she's no match for the men of this club. She she tells a, a lawyer of color that she knows who he is and all about his case. And all he says to her is, you're Murphy Brown, the woman, and walks away from her. She tries to sit down and talk to two men on a very squeaky leather couch, <laughs> says hello to them. They don't even answer her and walk away. And then she meets the club chaplain, who seems like maybe he's going to be a little nicer. And then he proceeds to give the best line of the episode, which is, it's a dark day and you've desecrated our home and ruined our lives and storms away. And then she finds a nice older man. He is so sweet to her. He's very kind. He says he's been around here for over 45 years and tells her, you'll do just fine. Um, or you'll do fine. She says, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm starting to finally get the impression that I might. And then he pulls out a box and offers her a shoe shine because appearances are very important here as he's learned. She kindly offers a no thank you. And then he turns away with bitch. 
which had me laughing out loud for a good 30 seconds because I was not ready for that. He was just trying to get some money from her. <laughs> but I love that he does that thing. It's the guy who tells me to smile on the sidewalk and when I ignore her, swears at me or calls yeah. me a name because mm-hmm. I did not deign to smile for him. That's a great example. Yes, it's exactly, I burst out laughing. I was like, wow, yep, that's real. Yeah. Where's the it makeup? so real. Yep. Someone yelled that to me on the street. Smile, I like, I am lady. wearing makeup. He's like, you're ugly anyway. Great, thanks. Exactly. Okay. Yep. And a man finally comes up and says, I'm not one to, to talk behind your back. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't want you here. Mm. And Jim finally steps forward and backs her up. And he says, like it or not, she is a member. You, I expect you to show her as much respect as you show me. Respect, that's the word. Yep. And saying, I expect you to show her as much respect as you have shown me, with you know, the understanding that Jim is a, is a respected member of this place. And he proceeds, the other guy proceeds to turn around and tell him to have a backbone and stand up to her. And this wouldn't have been a problem. And what I love is Jim then starts going into these specifics about how this woman has more right to be here than anybody based on what the the credentials and the expectations of a member of this club are. That she has integrity and that she shoots a damn fine game of billiards. Mm-hmm. He said billiards. Yes, and I love it. He also says that she has professionalism. Mm-hmm. She's a good friend. Yep. It's everything that you would love a friend to say to you exactly. in front of you and not behind your back. Yes. And Murphy is and just beaming you. at him. Yes. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's the mo- I got so emotional because I love my gym and this is my gym. And then he says, I will step outside with anybody who says otherwise right here, right now. And then some heckler in the back goes, sit down. And Jim just loses it. He's like, who said that? And, he st- and you see him, he's like, in, as a guy who clearly doesn't get into many fights. He's not a scrappy gentleman. He starts trying to take off his jacket and Murphy comes over to try and like calm him down. And then he yells out what clearly is the most damning statement he could, which is, you people really tick me off. You hear that? Tick me off. And the whole audience cheers. It's so good. I wrote salty blue language for Mr. Dow. He's so salty and I love it. And he says that the board approved her, I approved her, and if that's not good enough, then I guess you'll all just have to leave. And they all leave. And the aside that Jim does, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I barely have seen him do, is like, mm, oh. yeah. And I was like, who does it remind me of? Who does it remind me of? And I, the last time I watched it, I was like, Bill Nye. Yeah, it's very Bill Nye. But I couldn't place it. And yeah. then I went, oh, it's Bill Nye. It is. It's so charming. Maybe he stole it from Charles. <gasps> So then we cut hours later. It's after midnight. If you listen to our episode with Norm Gunsenhauser, mm-hmm. who co-wrote this episode, and if you haven't, we recommend that you go back and listen to it. He said that, that Diane English added this edition of them singing mm. at the beginning. They're singing Reach Out, I'll Be There, written by Jesse. Holland Dozier Holland. Thank you very much. With the hand gestures. Mm. It's so sweet. It's really sweet. But there is just this passion about it. And, and this whole scene just made me go, Charles Kimbrough, Broadway Theater. <laughs> he finally gets to less loose a yeah. little bit. I was like, he finally gets to sing. Oh, It's just, I see the history of their relationship in this ending. Yeah, they're just having fun. And, and Murphy's not drunk, but he is. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, eventually, you know, the, the bartender's like, it's after one, we're closed. Jim says the two members should we vote? Should we vote to keep it open? Yes, let's keep it open. And the bartender is actually not mean about it. He's just like, no. here. She's like, I have another soda. He goes, take the whole bottle, and then just like oh. leaves them. You know, M- Murphy asks if if he's okay. You know, and how he's feeling, and he quotes James Brown. Mm-hmm. I feel good, like I knew that I would, and then laughs at himself oh. and says something, which is the most important line of the episode. Everything changes, usually for the better. Yep. And this is the discussion, again, I've seen on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's more of a statement, and then discussion yeah. after it is, people always say that they, they long for the past when it was better. Yep. It never is. Nope. Progress always goes forward, and things are better. You know, and you and I have both had this conversation about having trouble enjoying things that we have once we learn more about their creators. But I will say, one of my favorite movies the last several years was... Midnight in Paris. And while I don't necessarily want to talk about the creator of that movie, Mm -hmm. I will say that the message of that movie about how everyone longs for the golden age that came before them. And once you get to that golden age, those people were longing for the golden age before them. That was actually very important to me because um, I was always a person Mm -hmm. who thought, oh, I'd love to live in this time period Mm -hmm. or that time period as a a fan of history, as a fan of the time travel genre. Mm and. At the end of that movie, I actually was okay and I let it go. I found so much peace in that message. Yeah, right? And I think that's something that happens to me in this. And there's, 
I, I had a similar moment the first time I rewatched this episode for the podcast and watched Jim say that. It was, it, it was something that I needed to hear right now in our culture because I think we're going through a lot of growing pains. Yeah. And hearing that and reminding myself that the, the change is, is the hard part, but the result of that is why we change. And I just, it, it felt like my dad telling me that in this moment. It's very important. He said it. And, and again, because I had just seen this discussion and I'm sorry, I can't remember the comedian who um, tweeted about it. I apologize. We'll put it maybe in the show notes. Mm -hmm. It's always sort of brought about regarding diversity mm -hmm. in this sense. And in this, you know, part of history, a woman was mm. considered a diverse part of this club, right? Because yeah. they're being discriminated against. Mm -hmm. And so that line really got me because again, it is very relevant today. Uh, and then we have a, a another plain montage alert. Because mm. again, I watched that episode so many times that I know most of the lines from the montage really well still, which is crazy because I went back to some episodes and went, oh, I can't do this word for word anymore. Yep. But I, I, it's, it's familiar because it's been a while since I, I watched them sure. all. But she goes, I guess sometimes I wonder about someone who gets into her 40s and she's still pushing her way into everything. And that's, you know, put over sort of Murphy's life going in front of her eyes. Mm -hmm. um, and then in this episode, Murphy goes upsetting all the apple carts, mm -hmm. referencing back to that line that... Um, that wasn't highlighted and emphasized in that moment. Yeah. That's what I think is beautiful about the writing. And wondering if it's worth the fight. And Jim sort of playfully asks, who, who are you talking about? Oh, oh, someone else, someone mm -hmm. else. I love that whole exchange. Yep. So Jim throws out a song that he likes, which is um, The Lady is a Tramp. By Richard Rogers and yeah. Lauren's Heart. Little, little show tune action. It's from Babes in Arms, but I think most people probably know it from Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Which mm -hmm. is probably what I think Jim is referring to. And they dance. And, and they, they do the lyrics, and, and I, I'm just going to give one lyric that really, you know, gets me because they go back and forth, is that Murphy says, she never bothers with people she hates. Mm. That's why the lady is a tramp together. And then they dance cheek to cheek. And I wrote, damn, that's a good episode. <laughs> oh, it's so good. And can I just say, I uh, this is a conversation you and I had personally mm -hmm. recently, was that idea of that line stood out to me as well, reminding me of it of this conversation was that I don't, I don't put time into people I don't think are worth it. I don't put the effort into things I don't think are worth it. And you don't put your energy into people you hate and you don't put the effort to work through things with people that you don't think are worth putting the effort into. I'm gonna cry, Jesse. I'm sorry, I don't mean to make you cry. Don't make me cry on our podcast. I just, I think that that's a beautiful moment and I think that's, we fight for what we love. Mm -hmm. And they love each other. They love each other very much and I think that's why this episode means a lot to me. And if you audience love us, you should review us on iTunes. What a segue. Queen of the segues. Ding, ding, ding. It is a free way to support the podcast. If you go on iTunes and uh, give us a rate and review. If you don't have iTunes, grab the phone of the friend next to you who probably has an iPhone. Oh, heck yeah. And you use their name and you put a review for us. See, I fixed it. Look at that. Yeah. She's so good at stuff. Just I am really good at stuff. I go to Millburger. I just recommended uh, theft to help our podcast. Well, they'll give it back. Oh, yes, of yes. course. That's, that's it's a fine. borrow. It's, it's a borrow. It's a borrow, yes. It's a kind borrow. Uh, you can also follow us on social media. Oh, please do. We're on uh, the Facebook, the Twitter, the Instagram at Murphy Brown Pod, which is also conveniently our website, murphybrownpod.com, and our email, murphybrownpod at gmail.com. Uh, you can also party on down like we do. Mm -hmm. Did I just say party on down? Party on down, Lauren. Oh, I did. It's so 1990s in mm. this place. At our Spotify playlist, which is Murphy Brown Empowerment Playlist, the link is on our website under the FAQ if you cannot find it and the next episode will be episode 14 uh, it's one that Lauren might have a couple opinions about well, it's called it's how you play the game and it's the um, introduction of a, a character that probably most of you haven't heard of his name is uh, Gerald Jerome, Silver? Jerome Goldberg no, Jerome Goldberg yes that one and um, we're, I'm excited. It's Jerry Gold, guys. It's Jerry Gold. It's Jerry Gold, in case you weren't sure. But Jay sure. Thomas is not in this episode. No, no. It just introduces yes. his show. We will see you next week for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. What the f